So when exactly did you want to become a media mogul? I never wanted to become a media mogul. <laughs> Ezra Klein is one of the most influential political commentators in America. A co-founder of Vox.com, he is now a New York Times opinion writer and podcaster. He's got nearly 3 million followers on Twitter, the platform for political junkies. But also, he kind of hates Twitter. Twitter flattens people to less than a single dimension. It has good sides too, but it's a place of aggressive position taking. It's just terrible for actual conversation, terrible for nuance. I mean, I have just felt in my body that what Twitter is doing to me is bad. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Art of Power. I'm your host, Arthi Shahani. Today, Ezra Klein wants to fix the broken system that is Congress by writing about it. He himself is operating from inside another broken system, mass media. He has already had some impact, but he has come to learn that his most basic assumption about how to win hearts and minds was wrong. I don't know how much margin there is to move people on things where they're already pretty locked in. He is working to reinvent journalism and maybe even himself. I am currently recording. You sound great. Thank you. I did all my vocal exercises this morning. Do you really have vocal exercises? No, I don't. <laughs> Ezra Klein is a precision machine, the kind of person who reads the footnotes and the works referenced therein to land on how he feels about a thing. He's built a small empire in media off his distinct style. People don't always believe this when I say it, but the things I built in media... I always built because there's a kind of journalism I wanted to do or wanted to see that wasn't happening or that I couldn't do. There's this thing that you do that to me, it's like the Ezra magic trick. Um, and it's like, take an incredibly contentious development or issue and then explore it in a way that puts people in sort of a head spin um, before landing on an ultimate conclusion. And I want to choose to sort of demonstrate how you do that. Mitch McConnell and the Supreme Court. Let's let the American people decide. In the last year of the Obama presidency, McConnell blocked a Supreme Court nominee, this guy named Merrick Garland, saying the electorate should decide. If you look at the history of vacancies created in a presidential year, they don't get filled. Right. But, what about but then in the last year of the Trump presidency, the senator reversed his position. He was like, let's get our nominee in. President Trump's nominee for this vacancy will receive a vote. Political junkies on the left frothed at the mouth, called McConnell a total hypocrite. But Ezra, who is also on the left, that's not exactly his verdict. So I am not in any way here to excuse the degree to which Mitch McConnell bullshitted the country about a principle that he did not believe to be a principle that he invented on the fly to block Merrick Garland. So my, my point when I give this revisionist take on Mitch McConnell is not to absolve him, but it is to say at the same time that his actions were purely rational and that we should understand him and what happened there as not only rational, but on some level inevitable. Hmm. What's important to understand about that moment is McConnell doesn't invent a new power. He doesn't break a rule. 
what he has are the votes to block Merrick Garland, and he uses them. He treats it like any other vote in the same way that McConnell will not bring a liberal bill to the floor. He does not bring a liberal Supreme Court justice to the floor. Like, what incentives have we actually set up in the system? Because the thing about Mitch McConnell is he just follows the incentives of the system. And what he does is he does it more baldly than other previous majority leaders or Senate leaders have. So in a way, it seems cynical and like a break from practice. But he's really just a, like a weather vane for the true game we have actually set up here. And so I always want people to understand the ways in which American politicians are rational actors whose decisions are shaped by a system that is bigger than they are. Hmm. Why do you want people to understand what he is doing is completely rational, given the power he has at hand? I want people to understand that it is not the politicians who are broken. It is a system that is broken. Hmm. This is the absolute molten core of my political project right now. You cannot fix this system by swapping in and out politicians. That's the magic trick. Lift the hood and look inside the system, even when it's one specific person's actions that are pissing you off. Don't just hate the player. Hate the game. Obviously, I would prefer... A Senate majority leader, you know, Chuck Schumer to a Senate majority leader, Mitch McConnell. I think that's pretty clear from my politics. But Mm -hmm. it's really important to recognize that politicians are bounded by the, the, the broader structure. You cannot have the system I think a lot of people want. Um, or at least the outcomes a lot of people want in the system we have. And so long as people keep focusing on the politicians, they're going to keep trying to fix it using the wrong tools and get more and more frustrated and more and more alienated and more and more discouraged. Ezra, what you just said, saying you'd rather have a Chuck Schumer than a Mitch McConnell leading the Senate, the fact that you feel comfortable saying that, whereas most journalists would be reticent to publicly state their opinions. Why do you feel comfortable saying that? And more to the point, why do you think that doesn't get in the way of your legitimacy and your influence? Well, I'm an opinion journalist on some level, right? My job now is I'm an opinion columnist at the New York Times. Sure. Though you you did this before you were an opinion columnist. Yeah, I have um, my career has never been built on the idea that I am objective. I hope that it's built on the ideas that I am honest and fair and thorough and and do the work and try to understand views I don't agree with. Mm -hmm. But I also believe that part of that honesty is at the end of the day saying to the audience, hey, and here's where I come down. And you don't have to come Mm -hmm. down with me, right? You don't have to agree with what I said. But hopefully, even if you don't, you find value in my analysis. Mm. I had exactly that thought as you were mapping the Mitch McConnell power play, which is that the way that you then become an opinionated voice, but one that serves the interests beyond those in your political camp is this incisive mapping that kind of helps anyone's army get a hold of what's going on. My journalism has two motivations. Like the first and foremost is I want to have a good effect on the world. I do journalism as a way to improve the world. I'm not here mm-hmm. because like, I can't live without writing. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. next to that is a genuine curiosity 
about why people are doing things and how things work and what the right policy is. And to me, those things are not intention. Hmm. I think that being truthful with yourself and, and for that matter with the audience about how the world works, really trying to understand it at the deepest level you possibly can, it helps you understand how to make it better. And sometimes, by the way, it shows you that ways you might have thought would make it better do not. Mm-hmm. So that that curiosity, that, that, that desire to actually understand, to me, it's not somehow a different project than wanting mm-hmm. change. Like mm-hmm. you need to map the world in order to chart a route to get where you want to go. People inside newsrooms would have very different reactions to what Ezra Klein is saying. Some would roll their eyes and think, well, that's nice for you. But most of us, we don't have that privilege. And that's not even a good thing. Our job is to serve the public. We do that by reporting the facts, not by spouting our opinions. Another set of people in newsrooms would think, Ezra is right on. Let's drop this BS notion that any human, let alone any journalist, is objective. I can report, read, and have informed conclusions, just like Ezra does. As for me, at the start of my journalism career, I tried to make myself be in the former camp. But turns out, I'm in the latter. Ezra Klein started there. And the fact of his existence and success has given permission to a new generation of journalists to do the same. Let's rewind to Ezra's origin story. I was bitten by a radioactive spider. <laughs> and it had been on newsprint. And, and so, it made you blog. And it made me blog. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and before it bit you, you were born in 1984. I am dating the age that you yeah, are I re- now. I remember that when that made me young and now it's starting to make me old. Uh-huh. <laughs> you will get only older and you'll look back at your current age as though it was youthful. So, so you're all right. So you grew up in Irvine, Irvine California. Your father is a math professor. Uh, your mom is an artist. You graduated high school was it with a 2.2 GPA? Yeah. How come? It's a good question that I think about <laughs> a lot myself. The uh-huh. the proximate answer is because I got bad grades. Right. That's how one gets 2.2. And yeah. the proximate answer to that is that I wasn't able to pay attention in class. Hmm. I, I always want to – I think people now want to paste a, oh, I bet you were too smart and bored for high school. Like people want to paste a triumphant narrative onto it, mm. you know, or like school failed you. But that wasn't how it felt to me at all. Mm. Uh, I just could not, and to some degree still cannot, like listen to somebody lecture at the front of a room. Mm. So mm. I had incredible trouble focusing on anybody like talking at me. And then because mm. of that, I often like couldn't or didn't complete homework. Mm. And it was just a kind of constant struggle and feeling of failure. You know, my parents were incredibly disappointed in me. Like it wasn't a good feeling and it wasn't a good um, period for me. I mean, I have incredibly, incredibly wonderful friends from that period. So I I don't want to suggest it was all bad. But the sort of disconnect between the fact that I was smart and clearly interested in intellectual life and couldn't seem to pass Algebra 2 was just really weird for everybody and, and for no one more so than me. 
And then like the Mm -hmm. great surprise of my life, like truly the great surprise of my life is that I then turn out to be an incredibly hard worker because like the (laughs) the dominant view of me then, including Uh from me, is that smart kid, lazy. Mm. What's an early moment where you start to shed that story about yourself and realize, oh no, I might actually be a workaholic or I'm not lazy. I'm really driven if. I think there are a couple. So I read voraciously, like just voraciously. I spent like three or four nights a week at Barnes and Nobles. Mm. Like that's just where I lived. And so that was already clear to me that when I was interested, I was committed. So I had that. And then um, when I was 16, I lost a lot of weight. Um, I lost like 50 pounds Mm. by basically eating the same thing and running three miles a day every day for six months. Uh And that was the first time in my life that I had ever shown a high level of discipline. And I couldn't quite give you a great story for why that happened. I was rejected by a girl I really liked. And that was like the (laughs) the catalytic trigger. Uh But but why I was able to do it, I'm still not 100% sure. But that was an early recognition that maybe I had something in me I had had trouble tapping. And then the real explosion for me, though, came when I found blogging in, in college. The year was 2003, still the early days of blogging, a time Ezra recalls with nostalgia because, he says back then, bloggers really wanted to hear each other out, debate their hearts away. Ezra was a freshman at the University of California, Santa Cruz. He read political blogs like Instapundit, CalPundit, and one written by another college student, this guy at Harvard, just a little older than Ezra. And it's that one where I'm like, oh, well, if he could do it, like, why can't I? And so I start writing a blog and I email him to say, hey, I really like your stuff. And and I've started one. And he very kindly starts linking to me. And so, like, Mm -hmm. that's the first piece of really important positive feedback. And so as you're blogging, you have a small audience, but the audience happens to include a powerful man, a veteran Democratic campaign strategist. And that then brings you on a journey, right? Yeah, this is such a weird story. So this is now still 2003, probably, right? Uh, And I am blogging. And it's the Democratic primary. Mm -hmm. And I get into Gary Hart. Gary Hart, the former Colorado senator, jarred the world of politics yesterday. Gary Hart was a senator from Colorado who kept running for president. He dropped out one time after a sex scandal. Ezra becomes a lone warrior in the blogosphere, writing a pro-Gary Hart blog. And the reason I get into Gary Hart is that I read what's still, I think, the best single book of campaign journalism ever written, which is What It Takes by Richard Ben Kramer which is like a thousand plus page tome about the 1988 presidential primary, Democratic primary. And Gary Hart is a key figure in that. And Hart seems great. I mean, I think Hart was great. I think he would have been a a, a terrific president. Hart is just like this cerebral, thoughtful, like very, very visionary politician. Cerebral, thoughtful, seems Ezra identifies with the guy. People from the Gary Hart camp notice they recruit Ezra to be an intern. So Gary Hart comes out to the Bay Area, and, and they asked me to drive him to and from the events. 
And among other things, I'd like barely been in San Francisco ever and certainly had never driven my stick shift car there. Mm. So Gary Hart comes. I'm so excited, so excited. And, you know, the first event is like really poorly attended, um, which I think was partially my fault, although I don't remember why. Um, and then Were you doing outreach for it. <laughs> I, I think I think a little bit. I don't remember actually okay. what I did or didn't do on some of this. Uh-huh. And then I, I try to take him to to San Francisco, but we get caught in terrible traffic. And like we're running late for his event and then we're like on the San Francisco hills and I'm like trying to do the stick shift. I keep burning out the engine and it's like smelling weird in the car. So I put like, he's like, can I just drive? And I'm like, no, it's fine. <laughs> and as I remember this, he says definitively he will not run for president like a day or two later. And I've always wondered if he came and like was with this like idiot 18 or 19 year old <laughs> having this terrible experience. It's like, I am just too old for this shit. Like, this is not going to be worth it for me. You think you changed the course of progressive history by driving badly for him? Well, no, I don't think he would have won it. He would not have won in 04 either. But, um, but uh-huh. so, so Hart drops out. And, uh, you know, as I think probably the only Gary Hart stan in the blogosphere at that time, I write uh-huh. this, you know, to my audience of 35 people a day. That's like, oh no, Gary Hart's gone. Like, well, you know, what are we going to do? <laughs> One of those 35 people is the campaign manager for another presidential candidate who had a better chance of winning. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House! Ah! Ezra gets invited to join that campaign for candidate Howard Dean. And it's during this period that I'm like, I don't want to be on a campaign. I realize that the experience of having to defend and at least pretend to agree with everything a candidate does and says is just not my personality. I hate it. Hmm. I want to be able to honestly assess and think through like the world as I see it, not have to say, yeah, what Howard Dean did today was right. And like, here's why that is that, that that sublimation to another person's viewpoint. That's the part of it. I, I didn't like. How many of you try out a job that doesn't feel good? But still, because you think you should, you make yourself fit into it. Ezra, the political junkie, could easily have done that. But he doesn't. He sticks to what feels right. Also, he points this out. He got lucky with timing. Ezra came at the exact right time, a time when newsreaders wanted more writers sharing their opinions and newsrooms were not delivering. There was a market opportunity. You know, prior to blogging particularly, there's very little actual political opinion out there. You have newspaper opinion sections, which, you know, publish a couple columns a day. You have talk radio. You have you know, at this point, like cable news is still pretty fresh. You have Fox News and MSNBC is only a couple of years into its liberal turn. Mm-hmm. People are actually really underserved on political opinion. And it's so weird to think about this time now because we're drowning in political opinion. Yeah, right? man, you political opinion the floodgates. And takes, <laughs> yeah. And, and honestly, I, I definitely think it has gone way too far to the other side. Like I think uh-huh. now what's missing oftentimes is, is news and, and contextual uh-huh. work. Ezra moves swiftly from the blogging fringes to the blogging mainstream after writing his first greatest hit, a Health of Nations blog. America was debating healthcare, and Ezra compared the U.S. to Germany, France, Japan, many other countries. Way more than 35 people noticed. And so, at age 21, the magazine, The American Prospect, hired Ezra. 
he moved to Washington, D.C., where he quickly found presidential campaigns were desperate to talk to him. He was one of the very few journalists who bothered to read and dissect their policy proposals. They were starved for somebody to write a piece saying, I think this is good or I think this is bad. And so, like, they were just thrilled that I was out there, like, assessing their plans and saying what I thought of them. It was a weird kind of power that I, I – it took me a minute to understand. No, that's really interesting because it's basically, like, it's not horse race politics you're covering. You're willing to go into the weeds of policy. I believed um, policy coverage was really underserved. I knew what the audience looked like, and I could see that people were actually hungry for this. Ezra Starr rose some more. He got hired to blog for The Washington Post. He got invited on TV to do nerdy and opinionated explainers on MSNBC. The problem is that the bills don't agree, and some of them may actually be unconstitutional. And then there was this one time when his writing, in the form of a single tweet, nearly cost Ezra Klein his entire career. This is just a terrible moment for me. That's after the break. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Art of Power. I'm Arthi Shahani. Ezra Klein exploited the internet to build his career. And there is a moment when Ezra almost got canceled. And a warning, this next part includes explicit language. Ezra was still at the American Prospect. He was blogging during a presidential debate, and he thought the moderator, Tim Russert, asked questions that were trivial. In New Hampshire, your polling was much higher than the actual vote result. Do you believe people use race as an issue? No. Ezra tweeted, and this is the explicit language, Fuck Tim Russert. Fuck him with a spiky, acid-tipped dick. Ezra says the tweet was a joke, and he thought it was private, only visible to a small group of friends. But it was public. And it was incredibly, incredibly humiliating um, for me and also terrible. Like, I, I don't curse people out. I don't insult them like that. Like, I think if you've ever read my writing, it's always restrained. And, and I had a critique of Russert that night, too. But that wasn't what that tweet was. That tweet was a joke to people I thought would get it. Mm-hmm. And it was horrifying. Like, I'm, I still, like, fill with shame, like, as you talk about it. Because I mm-hmm. never, right? I, I wouldn't have said that. That was not obvious. Like, it doesn't make any sense. And what happened that was horrifying? Well, one, that just, like, it was attached to me. I mean, it had some career consequences like I had a I was doing hardball at that time like regularly and like that was the end of that for a while Mm -hmm. um yeah but I mean I was lucky like probably if that happened today it would have been totally different um but um people thought something about me and the way I write at least for a minute that just wasn't true it's just horrible and you can't go around and explain to everybody individually no, you don't understand. This was a parody of other things I was seeing that I was sending mm. to 23 people who were seeing the same things as me. Like it just, mm. there's no way to say all that. So mm. one reason I am unbelievably careful in my public statements in any social media, in any like digital context at all, is I had this very, very, very early experience with how badly it can go. And again, I want to be, I, I be clear because it's important to me to be understood on this. 
Uh-huh. I didn't write that as an attack on Tim Russert, and I wished it hadn't gotten out because it had curse words in it. Mm-hmm. I made a critique of Tim Russert that night. Mm-hmm. I had my critique of him. This yeah. wasn't that. I thought the the outrage building was out of proportion, and I was making a joke about it. So I just mm-hmm. I really want to push that. Understood. Like, this is not a literal thing that I wrote. Um, okay. You know, Ezra, I, I bring it up. I bring it up because Dylan Matthews, your long-term collaborator, put it on my radar. And he had a take that was, I think, slightly different than the one that you're sharing now. I want to just play for you what he believed that moment did for you in your understanding of your own leadership and voice. Okay, one second. I think it was really a turning point for him where he had to choose between being an acerbic, uh, angry Busby blogger and being Ezra media mogul who has to be diplomatic and chooses fights and, and not make enemies for no reason. No, Dylan's wrong about that. Unfortunately, I love Dylan mm-hmm. and he's right that I did have to make that choice, mm-hmm. but I would have never written that Russia thing. That was not something that I was doing and I misjudged ever, mm-hmm. ever in a million years. Mm-hmm. There is a moment. I can tell you the moment that turn happens, though, because it's mm. not this one. This mm-hmm. moment is like, oh, shit, Twitter's public. <laughs> but I did have a moment like that. So it is completely true that if you go back into my blogging, things I wrote publicly for public consumption, you will find me to be more acerbic and um, uh, sharp elbowed back then. Mm-hmm. I was having, I believe it was a fight with John Shade, who's at, who was then at the New Republic. Now he's at New York Magazine. And we used to argue about things like Israel all the time. John is like much more hawkish than me. Mm. And I don't remember what this was about, but I remember these words exactly. John said to me that um, over email, he's like, I don't think you realize now how big a voice you have. And so when you attack people, they really feel it. Mm. Mm. And like that actually stopped me cold. Mm. I think I still thought of myself as just like an upstart blogger who like nobody really cared what he thought. And when Mm -hmm. John said that to me, like that forced a reckoning. And from there, I've always been much more judicious. Mm. And so as you've come to accept that, oh, I have power, it's changed how much you're willing to like really throw your sharpest criticisms out there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's really important in, in one's life, like if you are privileged to develop a, a bigger and bigger platform, to keep track of like actually how much reach you have and like what kinds of responsibilities that demands of you. Like I'll never, you will almost never see me dunk on a person on Twitter. I have 2.7 million followers on Twitter. If I dunk on somebody, like they can really get mobbed. Like I just have a much bigger megaphone. So mm-hmm. I don't do it, like, except okay. in, you know, I think I can remember one time I did it in the last, like, three years or four years, and I felt bad about it after. What's your case? What's your best argument for why it's in the self-interest of people who are trying to build their public voice to not play the Twitter game, to not fall into the incentive structures of being mean or outrageous to get attention? I want to be careful in how I say this because different people have different incentive structures. I think for a lot of journalists, they would be better off doing great journalism than trying to do Twitter like dunks. 
Um, and the reason I think this matters is I think Twitter often makes people's actual journalism worse. It creates a lot of groupthink. It changes your view of what is important, right? Like what's important there is different than what is actually important. It changes your view of what the range of acceptable opinion is. Like, and I said this all the time, like everybody at Vox will tell you this. I always said like your job is not to be on Twitter, but I would watch young journalists get really into Twitter controversies. They would make mistakes. They would get in trouble with us because like, you know, they were creating like problems for the institution on, on the platform, but also they would get a narrower version of what they should be doing. It was distracting them. It was like changing their viewpoints. It was narrowing their, their scope. There are people for whom it makes sense. You know, I do think there are people who've been very influential there. And I know it feels like that is where editors and writers are. And I think there's some truth to it. I think net-net, it's often not great. But net-net hides a lot. For some people, it works out for them. And for a lot of people, I think it it doesn't. Um, Collectively, I think it's bad for us. This Twitter tirade, it's not just a tirade. Ezra is taking concrete steps to change how and where he practices journalism. Ezra recently wrote his first book. It's called Why We're Polarized. A lot of the research in that book for me is like staring into the abyss, that it is Mm -hmm. a refutation of a lot of what I spent a decade doing in journalism and and believing about Mm -hmm. American, you know, politics. He spent a decade plus making arguments, the best argument he could make for policies he wanted to see. But what he has come to learn is that the best arguments don't win. That point might be utterly obvious to some of you and a total shocker to others. What matters more to people than reason is identity. We humans are wired to fall in lockstep with our identities, Woman, gun owner, black, trans, Christian, coal miner, name it. You can be born into the identity or choose it. But once the identity matters to you, you are not going to go against your group. Look at sports teams. Like, it's such a weird, random thing. Like, all right, I live in the city and these people who are not from the city and would leave the city if somebody offered them more money play for its basketball team. And then it wins or it loses and like people riot. Right. So like when you really begin absorbing the power of groups in our lives, it's you, it becomes a little bit hard to see anything else in a way that's you know, pretty, pretty scary. Scary and instructive for how each of us might approach arguments over Thanksgiving dinner and for how Ezra Klein does journalism. I do always want to make the distinction between trying to persuade people who already roughly agree with you but are not sure where they're going to come down on, on, on separate issues. So people who already – you're in their circle of trust together and people who don't. It's extraordinarily hard to convince somebody who doesn't want to listen to you of something they don't want to believe. It basically doesn't happen. People talk about preaching to the choir, mm-hmm. but arguing with the choir is actually important. Talking to the choir, thinking through things with the choir, you know, is important and is very possible, right? Persuasion is much more possible in those scenarios. Like, I think I have done a lot to persuade people on the left the filibuster should be abolished. The filibuster is when senators hijack time to prevent their colleagues from voting on a bill. Sometimes the senator will argue passionately for hours, days on end, 
Sometimes they literally just read the phone book. It's kind of like when kids say, I can't hear you, I can't hear you, I can't hear you. Ezra has long said, kill the filibuster. It's destructive, not productive. And beating that drum, he's had influence. I think it's become something closer to the consensus position in the Democratic Party. And you've played a role in that. You've played a role in telling the Democratic Party, pay attention to this issue. Yeah, and and that may speak to something that actually is really, really right now changing in my theory of what my role is. Look, one of the things the media can do is it can raise the salience of issues. The most important act, and it is often an ideological act that, that we uh, engage in, is choosing what to cover. I don't know how much margin there is to move people on things where they're already pretty locked in. So you're just not going to see me at this point writing a lot of columns about... What's the right way to put this? I am really questioning what it is I am doing when I just write a column saying what the Republicans in Congress are doing right now is bad, not because I don't believe it is bad, but because I'm not sure what effect that column has on the world. Is anybody reading me curious? Whereas I do think there's a lot of value in moving things people aren't thinking about into their line of sight. Ezra, in terms of educating the choir, a phrase you used just a few minutes ago, in terms of educating the choir, is what you're doing and how you're doing that different from when you started? When you started, you were naming issues and trying to bring attention to issues. So has something evolved or changed in how you approach the education of the choir? I would say yes and no. I think that particularly in the podcast over the past couple of, of years, I have become in that medium more committed to the work of trying to create a space that is more open to all of us, myself very much included, learning, hearing, even transforming at times. Mm. So the idea that, you know, education is my goal, that's not that's not really changed. But but to some of the points you're making about the ways my view of persuasion has maybe become more grim. I think a lot more energy has to go into creating a space where people are open to listening. Um, and, and on all sides, by the way, uh, and that includes me. The, the only thing I don't like about the phrase I just used, educating the choir, is it sounds very one way. If you're not actually there listening yourself and like open to, to being changed by things and modeling the behavior you want to see in others, then they're not going to give it to you because like this is psychologically threatening stuff. I've become more obsessed, you know, as I've gone on in journalism with how to create spaces that are more conducive to the kinds of politics that I, I personally want to practice and I want others to practice, um, as opposed to simply assuming that that is already created and then like acting like this is simply a collision of ideas. And that's changed for you then? That's not necessarily where you were when you started? I think about it more explicitly and more often. I mean, it's one reason I really try to move. If I am if I have a disagreement worth having, one reason I try to move it to the podcast and away from Twitter and other formats is because I want to make sure I am doing the work to see them as a person mm. too. And so you want more surface area, more interaction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I think there's a modeling, right? I mean, there's a creating the kinds of political spaces you wish were there. 
you know, one thing I'll say about my podcast, which is different than kind of anything else I do, it's a place where political communication works the way I wish it worked. And, you mm. know, it's a place where I can do the work to be a kind of better version of myself um, than I probably am in my normal life oftentimes. And I don't overstate the impact of that. It's just one show out there, you know, with sure. however many there there are. Yeah. But but that's my contribution to the discourse. Right. And, and I try to take that seriously. Let me ask you two follow-ups from that. Um, one is, what does the podcasting space give you that Twitter denies you? Twitter flattens people to less than a single dimension. It has good good sides too, but it's a place of aggressive position taking. It's terrible for conversation, just terrible for actual conversation, terrible for nuance. I mean, mm -hmm. 140 and then 280 characters, just nothing. Mm -hmm. Threads are still an awkward thing to do. Mm -hmm. I don't think Twitter brings out the best in people politically. It does have upsides, right? I mean, for instance, I think it can make it a lot easier for marginalized groups to, to be heard and, and to, to push their, their claims into the political conversation. It can also do that for terribly noxious, dangerous groups like the alt-right, right? Mm -hmm. You know, or frankly, like Donald Trump in a different way. I just don't think the space, and I don't know what to do about this because I do think Twitter is the single most influential political media platform. Like, I just mm -hmm. believe that. I don't think it's even really that arguable. Um, I think it is where the elites of politics and media spend most of their time. And so it is like the fastest place to, to get a rise out of them. But I think what it does to people is bad. And so in your decision then to disengage from it, you're not currently living a strategy to maximize your followers. That's not what you're doing. You're now uh, focusing more on the podcast space, still on Twitter, but focusing more on the podcast space. Relate that back now, Ezra, to your theory of change and you exercising influence. How is that strategic for you to build power? You're not going to like the answer I'm actually going to give you here. Okay. It's just unfortunately the truer one. I'm bracing myself. I didn't move into podcasting as a strategic thought about how to build power. Mm -hmm. I moved into podcasting because I liked podcasting. And a lot of my the moves I make in journalism are intuitive. Mm -hmm. For some time, I have just felt in my body that what Twitter is doing to me is bad. Mm -hmm. um, and the podcast is different than that. And so I do have theories of how the podcast acts upon people and how it changes them and how it changes me, by the way. Like, I feel like I am different because of the amount of time I spend really trying to inhabit other people's minds before I talk to them on the show. I spend a lot of every week mm -hmm. really trying to live in the way another person thinks. I think it's good for me. I think I'm a different person because of it. Mm -hmm. But I didn't start doing that because I sat back and thought, how could I act upon the world with the most force? Mm -hmm. I did it because I felt bad. I mean, I am in politics and political communication and political media all the time, and I could just feel that it was feeling worse and worse and worse and worse, and I didn't like the places I was spending my time. And I began to think that the the unidimensionality of a lot of our political communication was really shaping politics and, and making it worse. And so I'm not sure at all that me spending as much time on the show as I do is having a bigger effect on the world than if I just like invested in Twitter 24-7. I could really see the argument for the other way. But... It is the effect I want to have, and it's the kind of person that I want to be in the political sphere. And it's a little bit more joyous for me, which, which isn't completely irrelevant. 
Yeah, I don't mind that answer at all. I think it's a pretty good one. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't expecting everything must be in in the hunt for more influence. I do wonder, and this is a final question, you described, Ezra, this feeling of tightness, right? You're operating and you're finding a kind of in your being, this oppositional maybe or rigid feeling towards the world, is it correct to say you're seeking to feel less that, to feel more open as opposed to more rigid? Yeah, I think that's very, very true. <laughs> I've become a little more intuitive and mindful maybe of just how things feel over the past 10 years. I'm a little less just directly cerebral than I was. Mm. Something I do kind of look for is whether the work I'm doing, the spaces I'm inhabiting, the way I'm acting, when I get up from it, do I feel tight, cramped, agitated, narrow? Mm -hmm. Or do I feel you know, spacious, compassionate, open, uh, curious is one I look for? Mm -hmm. And you know, I'm not sitting here telling you that I, I use my body like a divining rod in my politics. <laughs> There's plenty of columns I write that you know, they, they, come, uh -huh. from a, they come from a different place than that. Uh -huh. But I do think there's something to it. You know, I think one thing you're trying to get at here is, is theories of change. And what I'll say is almost here a bit of a reversal of that. One of my theories is that if the way I feel I'm being changed by the kinds of media I'm in are negative, then my intuition is that's probably not going to lead to good politics. If it feels bad, it's probably bad for you. Not all. I mean, I don't want to say always. There are places. Mm -hmm. There are times when you're in an argument. But I think there's a difference between, you know, as Arthur Brooks puts it, anger and contempt. Mm -hmm. If I feel that a lot of contempt is being drawn forth in me, probably not great. If I'm being transformed into somebody who treats a lot of other people with more contempt, it's not great. Anger is fine, right? It doesn't always feel good, but I do want it to feel productive, and I and I want to maintain, which I think is important for a journalist and important for somebody who wants to find, you know, the right answers to to help make the world a little bit better on the margin. I think it is important to maintain that openness where you can, you know, see different possibilities, sometimes all at the same time. My lessons from Ezra Klein. One, pay attention to the structure in which you and others are operating, especially when emotions are running high. If there are rules that force you into being a crappy human, change them. Two, pay attention to your feelings. You don't always have to feel good, but when the balance tips from open and spacious to trapped and toxic, it might be a clue you're in the wrong place. Time to move. Three, when you get more power, careful how you use it. Abusing it can hurt others and yourself. This episode of Art of Power was produced by Mixmaster Justin Bull, Hina Srivastava, and me, Arthi Shahani. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. If this episode landed for you, made you stop, think, feel, identify as part of our group, hit subscribe and binge other episodes 
Our guests are glorious. Leave a written review on Apple Podcasts. They matter. Tell your friends and family. We're just getting started. Your word goes a long way. Let me know what you think. Text me at 917-708-5139. On Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Arthi411. See you next week. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.